0: Acts chapter number 3. There's one word that I want to minister on this evening, and that word is revival. Acts chapter 3, beginning with verse 19. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. "...whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers A prophet Shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me? Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you." Verse 19 again, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. The word revival. There are a number of books in the marketplace that a person can purchase to talk to them about revival. Leonard Ravenhill's classic book, Why Revival Tarries, is on the shelf of most preachers, that have ministered the word of God. He talks about how prayer has become like the Cinderella activity of many churches, that people don't take time to pray individually, and certainly they don't take time to pray corporately. Revival, of course, makes us think about something that has died. But that's not always the case. We know that if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned in the Garden of Eden, they could just as well be in this meeting this evening. But because of sin, they were put out of the Garden. One thing I do know is that revival is the result of the overwhelming presence of God. I don't care where you are, where you experience it, you will acknowledge the presence of God is real. Sometimes it comes suddenly like a rainstorm. Other times it emerges like the sun bursting over the horizon. But I can assure you, if you've ever been touched or stirred by God, you can't remain unaffected by that. When I started preaching in the mid 80s, revival services then would still go two weeks, three weeks long. I preached a number of those as a teenager. And the one thing I do know is when God begins to move in those kinds of settings, it's almost like trying to break up fallow ground the first two or three evenings. You're doing everything you can to try to stir the people. You're praying through in the early morning services, but somewhere along the line, about the fifth, sixth, or seventh day, there's normally some kind of a breakthrough. It's almost like, almost like someone trying to drive a car with the emergency brake on. Once you take the emergency brake off, then it just lurches forward. And it's like that in the spirit sometimes with the meetings in the churches. There's usually a key to every revival. It doesn't matter if it's a person or a particular thing that needs to be done. It could be somebody's grandmother. It could be the town drunk. It could be that child that should be in juvenile delinquency. That person comes to know Christ, and it normally changes an entire family or community. And you may very well have been the first one in your family to truly get turned on for God. When that occurred, then something wonderful began to take place. Now, revival, of course, means different things to different people. As I said, sometimes we think of it as a move of God. Sometimes we announce a revival and it becomes an evangelistic campaign or an extended meeting for three or four or five days. When we think of revival, sometimes for for some it can be like a seminar or something like that. But we run into the word revived several times in the scripture. Jacob thought that his son Joseph had been dead for nearly 30 years. When he found out that Joseph was yet alive, the Bible says his spirit revived. So as it says in Proverbs, as cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from afar. When Jacob learned that his son that he loved was yet alive, Something in him no longer wanted to sink down into the grave with gray hair. He suddenly rose up and he wanted to live. That's what happens when a revival begins to take place. It begins in a person and it ought to begin in you. It ought to begin in me. The scripture talks about Samson having fought so many different people, how the Lord claved a particular place out of a jawbone and produced a miracle. And then it says, when Samson drank of the water, he revived. Something natural can produce such a good feeling on the inside. If you've worked outside for a long time and been hot and sweaty, you know that if you get water from a well and you begin to drink that, it just seems like it cools down everything on the inside. So imagine what happens when a person is in the midst of, of a move of God and a revival is occurring and God is stirring a heart of somebody to tell them, I want you to be on fire again as you once were. Are you where you were five years ago in the Lord? Can you say your passion for God is greater today than it was a year ago? If you can't say that, then the problem is not on God's end, it's on our end. See, we've had great preachers in America all the way going back to the the colonial days when Jonathan Edwards would preach a great message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And people gripped the pews and were astonished at what he was saying. Because with all of this picturesque language, he was able to describe the horrors of eternity without God. And people had a fear and a dread that came over them. People were awakened to the sense of their own personal guilt and sin. Many people came to Christ. But let's not forget Finney. Charles Grandison Finney traveled across America and preached for a very long time. This man had a theology that a lot of Presbyterians didn't agree with, but they ordained him to the ministry. And because of his preaching, he filled up thousands of churches. They say people would fall under the power and they would scream and cry because of their sins and whole towns would be shaken by this man's preaching. The beer gardens and saloons would close down. Counties would go dry because there were fewer people to go to the bars to drink because they were hungry for God. Peter Cartwright. He was a great Methodist preacher, but he was a very odd kind of a guy. Peter Cartwright was the kind of a man that would get up and preach the gospel under a tent in a great camp meeting, see hundreds of people coming down the aisles, running as fast as they could. But then if somebody made him upset, he'd step outside the tent and with his sidearm be ready to fight with somebody outside the tent. And when he was done, go right right back under the tent and preach the gospel again and see a whole bunch of people come to Christ. He was a rough kind of a guy, but the old frontier of America came in contact with a man that knew God in the sense that he could preach salvation, and the Methodist church was the better because of it then. But you look at the churches today, and we reflect on the 19th century, then we think of the founders, and we have to shake our heads sometimes. I've already mentioned the Methodist Church, but John Wesley Redfield was one of the founders of the Free Methodist Church. I preach revivals for them. These are people that believed at one time in preaching the truth and living holy before God. That man had great revivals on college campuses where hundreds came to know the Lord. Phineas Brezee, the founder of the Nazarene Church. Those old folks shout and praise the Lord just like spirit-filled people. And they loved God and preached holiness. But I'm watching as one Nazarene church closes after another out here in the heartland. Somewhere along the line, we have lost the kinds of ministers that we had in the past so that at present, it's affecting the kind of generations that we're producing. And if we don't have people that once again stand and preach like Peter preached, then the message that birthed the church will be lost to a whole lot of people. There are many people just go to church and it's a religious thing. They go to church for business associations. They go to church because this is what grandma does. They go to church for this reason or that reason. But the reason to go to church is not just to get something, but to give something. To be in the presence of other saints and to be able to give fellowship and give a smile and to love people, but to be able to worship God in holiness and in truth and expect God to touch you. If you don't come through the doors with an expectation that God will minister to you, what's the point of coming? We could stay at home, watch a baseball game or listen to something on the basketball channel. But if if God comes into the sanctuary and he has a word for you and a word for me, it'll affect a lot of people. It says here in verse 19, repent, therefore be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Think about that word repent. It means to turn around. It means to be sorrowful over your iniquity and your sin. It means to think about your life and acknowledge those areas where you are separated from God. A place that only the blood of Jesus Christ is, is able to come and to cleanse you and to bring the forgiveness that you need. To, for, to, to find forgiveness and repent is to go in a 180 degree different direction from where you were traveling. At one point you were doing the toboggan slide towards hell. But now you're 180 degrees different. You're pressing up that mountain toward, called Zion and you're making your way toward heaven. Everything changes when we repent. One person repents. It affects the family. Because God begins to do things supernaturally through a life that goes in the opposite direction. And how many times have we seen that When someone ministered the word of God preacher years ago was in a church and it was a good church at one time had been a revival church of over 400 or 500 people. But something happened and the thing had dwindled down to maybe 30 or 40 folks in that church. So they invited a preacher and he comes out there and he's going to be there. He knows at least six or seven days. He gets up that first night and he preaches and the people just didn't look like they were responsive to anything that he said. He was preaching some fairly hard things. He got up there and he ministered that second and third night. And of course, he said when he got up, it was just like the Lord was just opening up a faucet. He, (coughs) He was dealing with all kinds of sin and different things in that congregation. He said, you just can't believe What I was having to preach about back in the 1950s in this full gospel church. Well, his wife said to him after several days of this, said, honey, when are you going to pour a little oil in and preach some honey? I mean, you're 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 giving this strong stuff to these people and you're hurting them. He said, well, I'm looking at them as I'm preaching to them." He said the old axe head is just bouncing off the side of the tree. He said, I'm not even wounding them. So he said communion is coming up uh, on Sunday. So he said Sunday morning I'll preach a nice little communion message that will encourage the people. Well, somebody had told him earlier in the week that the last preacher that came through here preaching a revival like you're preaching and said some of the things that you're saying, a couple of the men out back whipped them with a hose. And so the preacher, he was kind of thinking that the whole time he was preaching But Saturday night came, he preached, went to bed Sunday morning, he got up and the Lord spoke to his heart and said, about communion, you'll break bread with me before you break it with anybody else. So he told his wife, honey, you bring the kids along, I've got to go to the church and pray and talk to God. He said, when he got to the church, he laid down in that altar, began to talk to the Lord. God began to wrestle with him. God told him, your verse is going to come out of Peter. And he flipped over there and saw the verse and it said, judgment must begin in the house of God. He said, oh, my said, mama's not going to be too happy about this. Well, his wife came, and of course he said the preacher turned it over to him. He got up and ministered, and he said it was like somebody turned on the, the faucet, and he said for an hour and a half it just poured out of him as he preached the word. He said he couldn't believe the kind of stuff he was dealing with in the 50s in that church. But he said when he was done, it, was, it cut off as fast as it seemed like the Lord cut it on. And with all those people in there, he said to them, He said, deacons, come, get us ready for communion. He said, nobody moved. He said, deacons, I'd like you to come down, get us ready for communion. Nobody got up. He turned around, looked for the pastor, didn't see him. You know, you're looking for somebody, you expect them to be sitting in that chair. But he looked and the pastor had crawled down underneath the chair and was laying there groaning. That evangelist crawled down there next to him and said, pastor, pastor, uh, I called the deacons to come down. Nobody moved. What are we going to do? And he said, son, you have killed all of us with your preaching. And the young man said, well, pastor, what are we going to do? He said, I'm not going to do anything but lay up under this chair and groan. And he went back to saying, oh, God, help us, Lord. Well, that evangelist gets back up in the pulpit He said he looked at his wife, who had the two kids on the front row, and they were sitting there with her head down and eyes closed. And he was hoping that she would look up so he he could motion to her, take the kids out the side door. And if they owe us any money, they can mail it to us. But she was looking down. He said, once again, deacons, would you come forward? A man stood up in the back. And yelled out, and that evangelist said, you'd have to go to hell to hear a man scream like that. Said he stood up and yelled and said he had a a fistful of dollars, $20 bills or so. Said he stumbled down into that altar and yelled at that pastor and said, I swore I'd starve you out. And threw all that money at him, fell over in that altar and just started crying in agony like a man that had appendicitis. He said after that, he said there were young girls up there in the choir that all been having an affair with the same young man in that church back in the 50s. He said they all began to weep and wail in agony in that in that loft area of the choir. And he said it's like everything just exploded like God had lanced a boil and all of that stuff came leaking out. And he said he sat there and watched as broken, fractured relationships were mended in just a few moments. He said that evening they came out to church and without any advertisement at all. He said the place was packed. People were standing on the outside of the church. And he said he'd never seen it before and hadn't seen it since. He said when he got up to preach, it was like a cloud came down inside of that sanctuary, settled within the reach of a man's hand. And he said, in that church, everybody was filled with the Holy Ghost. Folks, I'm telling you, when repentance comes, it's because of the times of refreshing that appear, because of the manifestation of the presence of God. If God comes on the scene, he can do more in 30 minutes than a psychologist could ever do with you over a five-year period. God can do more for you than a psychiatrist could ever do if you humble yourself to the Word of God. So when we think of revival, we look at Acts chapter 3, verse 19, we see the word repent is important. But he said, be converted. Turn your life around. If you truly have submitted to the Word... And the Spirit of God has produced regeneration in your life. There ought to be a conversion of lifestyle. There's no way you can live this life without there being a change in you. There is no new birth without new life. Just like there's no natural life without the evidence of activity when a child is born. So if anybody tells me they're born of God, but doesn't experience any new life in God, then I question whether or not anything has ever happened. I'm not saying you just need to be religious. A whole lot of people know religious language. They know how to convert to the activities of a church. But when God gets hold to that cold heart and he grabs that heart and he squeezes it, he gives it new impulses, new desires. You're compelled to do things that you didn't feel compelled to do before because you're driven now by a spirit of God that wants you to live like God. He says, be converted. Supernatural things take place. Your sins are then blotted out. In ancient times, if you made an inscription in stone, the only way that inscription could be erased, it had to be blotted out. Now, of course, in these days, if you want something blotted out on the side of a building that's in stone, you sandblast it. But in ancient times, they had a process or procedure that was very arduous. And people had to do this by hand to try to blot out something that had been inscribed. Jesus said in Revelation, if you don't overcome, I'll blot your name out of the book of life. He said, if you do overcome, your name remains there in that book of life. So when you think of your sins, I want you to know that when the Lord blotted them out, they disappeared forever. You're forgiven. Whatever your past, whatever people have done to you, you don't have to feel bad about that anymore. The blood has cleansed you. And the time of refreshing in your life has brought joy and all kinds of excitement because you know the burden has been lifted because the sins have been blotted out. How many times have I seen people rejoice because of this very thing? That folks have come to know God and the Lord changed them quickly. The Holy Spirit can do what we are incapable of doing. We can try to talk to family members over and over again. But God, by the Holy Spirit, is able to do it. I had uh, some friends, they put a, a tent up in the Redwood National Forest many years ago. And I was the main speaker for the evening services. And one night, there was a a young lady who came up under that tent. She shares my wife's name, Tiffany. And she said to me, she said, Brother Darrell, this is my friend. And I brought her to the camp meeting. She's not a Christian. And so I then was talking with the other lady, and I said, well, you know, what brought you to the tent meeting with Tiffany? And she said, well, we both had a bet, and I lost the bet, so I had to come here. That's what she said. Okay, so we we talked a little bit more, then I I said to her, you're going to be coming every night. She said, absolutely, I'll be here, that's what the bet says. I said, okay, okay. I said, Well, I give you my word. If you come every night before the end of this meeting, you're going to be in this altar like everybody else, and you're going to have your hands lifted up, and you're going to be crying out to God. And she looked at me and laughed and said, You're out of your mind. I said, All right. Well, I got up and preached, and God was moving in those meetings as we proclaim in the gospel. I don't know if it was the first night, second night or third night, but one of those nights there was a gentleman sitting in the back, the rear of the tent. He had tattoos all over him from his forehead all the way down his neck, down to his fingernails and everything. And there was a young lady sitting next to him, but I could see as I was preaching that God was dealing with him. He was just squirming in his seat back and forth, couldn't keep himself together. When I gave that altar call, he's the first one down. I'm telling you, folks, he was doing a high step trying to get down there in front of me as quick as he could. And he got down there and we led him to the Lord. He came to know God. I thought the lady with him might have been his wife or something like that. It was his daughter. He said in his testimony, That he had got involved with gangs, and he had been in jail since he was 14. But before he went to jail, she came along. And so the whole time he was in jail, she was writing him letters saying, Daddy, you need God, so on. So he comes out, and he wasn't interested in God when he got free. But this tent meeting was going on, and he wanted to be there because his daughter kept inviting him. Well, God knew that he had fish on the line and the Lord reeled him right on in and it changed the father and the daughter. Well, in that same meeting under that tent, one night I was praying for a bunch of people after I had preached. They were lined up everywhere, people on their knees crying out to God And I was going by one by one, just laying hands on people, saying, oh, God, bless this one. Father, touch this one. Father, heal this one and so on and so forth. But I looked up and all the way at the end was that little girl that Tiffany had brought. She's down there on her knees, got her hands up and tears just flowing down that face that God, as God had dealt with. I didn't bother her then. But I did make sure I talked to her afterwards and I said, I thought you said you weren't coming down to that altar. She said, I don't know. God got a hold to me and I had to get down there. Folks, I'm telling you, when God begins to move, it's a wonderful thing. But revival is always an individual thing. God starts with one and then with that one, he works on another. And God, we don't need to pray that God revives a community. We need to pray that God revives us. We need to pray that God revives me. There should be enough fire and joy and passion inside of you that whenever you begin to talk about the Lord, when it comes up in your conversation, they know that you're real. And they know that you believe Christ is real. The Lord said through Peter, repent, be converted. Your sins will be blotted out when the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Let me invert the verse We'll say that when the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord, repent and be converted, and your sins will be blotted out. See, there's something about the overwhelming presence of God. When God appears in a home, when God comes on the scene in a church, then sometimes you find yourself crying. You find yourself smiling. You find yourself just Just thinking about what the Lord is saying to you, you begin to think about dreams that God gave to you years ago. You think about promises and prophecies that were proclaimed over your life a long time ago. And you sit there in the presence of God and sometimes it's a sober, somber thing when you begin to realize I am not doing what God told me to do. But that's when revival is taking place. The presence of God is stirring something in you and you realize I have to do something about this. That's the beauty of it. And when that's happening, folks, everybody wants to have some kind of contact with you because they realize he has something. She has something that I don't have. We'd only been here a few years when the bishop, the, the, the overseer for the Church of God denomination showed up in red cloud on a Sunday morning. Somehow he had heard that we had the church there and we had the church here and we were doing other things. And so he, he shows up and he he comes and he he wants to invite us to join the denomination. And we went out to eat and sat down and I had a few questions I said, well, let me let me ask you this. How, how many churches do you have across the state? Well, they had two. I said, really? I said, OK, I said, I, I, we, we've got two. And I said, we've got others in the making and we minister in a whole lot of places. So I said, OK, tell me, uh, what would we have to do to become a part of you? They said, well, you know, the, the property here in Red Cloud, you have to turn the deed of the property over to us. I said, really? <laughs> I, said, all, I said, all of us that, that built this and, and people put sweat and work into it, we, we all of a sudden now have to turn around and mail the, mail the paperwork down to another state to people that we don't know. He said, yes, that's, that's just the way we do it in the denomination. And I said, "Okay, what else will we have to do? They said, well, then you're going to have to make sure that you give at least 10 percent of your money to headquarters and then something for the state. And he goes on talking about all of this. And I think to myself, I "I appreciate you coming by, but you don't need to do this again. There's just absolutely no chance at all that that I'm coming into something, something like this. And and I said, it it seemed to me, and this is how I was thinking, I said, seemed to me the benefit is more for you than it'd be for us. You see, folks, when when God is doing something and there's a fire burning, people will know. You ever notice you don't have to advertise fire? People run from it. Some people run to it, but you don't have to advertise it. Because if there's a house on fire, there'll be people that'll be contacting the authorities to let them know it's going on. And then you always have a crowd of people that are standing there. None of them will have any buckets in their hands or a hose, but they'll just be watching as the roof is collapsing and as the smoke is ascending. And if you think about Moses, when he was out there in that desert and the burning bush was on fire in his presence, you know what he did? He stood there and he gazed at it also. And sometimes people are observing you and people are watching you because they can't quite understand you. I've told you before, many, many years ago, what Kenny Hobelman said about, said to me after he had been here listening to me preach maybe three or four Sundays. I, I was ministering the word of God. He'd just sit there and put his hands on his knees and just kind of shake his head and look down. And, and then finally, after one of those services, he said, Pastor, you know what? He said, I, I don't know if, if I believe everything you believe, but I do know that you believe it. You understand? See? Somebody says to a preacher, you ought not preach your convictions Then there's nothing to preach. Everything I preach, I'm convicted of. I believe it's truth. I believe it's right. I believe it's correct. I believe it's accurate. And I believe that if God does something in you and does something in me, other people are definitely going to know it. People know I'm a different pastor than other kinds of pastors. People know that you're a different kind of sheep than other kinds of sheep. I meet Christians in other churches around here, and I wonder if they even read the Bible or know God. But somebody comes in contact with you. They see the passion. They see the excitement. That's not a reason to be self-righteous, but that is a reason to boast in God because of the good work he's doing in your heart and in your life. So if revival is going to begin, it has to begin in us. Last thing I'll say about this verse is that the times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord come because they're sent from God. Revival doesn't come because people get holy enough. You hear people say, oh, if we ever just get right, revival will come. Oh, absolutely not. You look in the Bible, God sent the men and women of God during some of the darkest times, most sinful times. When God sends revival and revival comes, it's not because we're perfect. It's only because Christ is worthy. And when a revival breaks out, we're grateful for what God has done. I had to go to the wife's home church one time to preach a meeting. I preached several there, but, you know, if you're a, if you're a husband and you're a minister, if you've got to go to your wife's church, that's the one place you don't want to go and bomb. You want to make sure you do a good job at the home church, I can assure you that. Well, we 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 had a meeting and I can't remember what I preached on. But I, I do know that at the end of that service, there were people coming down that aisle to give their hearts to the Lord. There was one young man sitting next to a lady. When I opened up that altar service, that man jumped up. He went out that back door. We were in King's Temple Missionary Baptist Church. And this lady that was sitting next to him, she came down the aisle and she was just a crying. And there were other people down there, but she gave her heart to the Lord. This lady, I don't think she was 27, 28, something like that, had eight children by eight different men. But one message sliced through all of that iniquity, brought her to a place where she confessed her sins to God, found repentance And right there, she came to know the Lord. And I told her in that altar, I said, ma'am, all that you have told me about your life, I can see it's been difficult. And I was whispering this, the mic wasn't on and all that. And I just said to her, there are people in here you know and people in here that know you. And some of them are never going to be able to forgive or forget you for whatever's going on in your life. But you found a God that forgives and forgets. And you can start over with a clean slate with him tonight. I said to her, I said, that man that walked out the back sitting next to you, how's he connected with you? She said, he's my boyfriend. I said, okay. So the altar service was continuing. Then service was breaking up, but I made a beaten path down that center aisle to that porch where that man was standing. And I went out there and I stood next to him. He was right here looking forward and I was looking forward and I I said, I noticed when I gave that altar call, you got up and you came out here. He said, yes, sir. I said, I, I believe from looking at you as I was preaching that God was dealing with your heart. And he was still saying, yes, sir. I said, I believe that right down that aisle, and we turned around and looked straight down that aisle. I said, right down that aisle and that altar on your knees, God is waiting for you to meet him. Now I know that when the word is being preached, that wherever God brings the power of conviction, He gives a man or woman the power and ability to repent. So I know that salvation for him wasn't down the center aisle. He could have very well have believed what I was preaching as it was being proclaimed. But I also know that if someone truly repents of their sins, the Bible talks about displaying fruits of repentance. So I said to him, right down that aisle on your knees, we can meet with God right now. Would you like to walk with me? I won't even let you go alone. He said, I'd like to go. We went down there. He got on his knees. Several men joined around us, and he began to confess his sins, repeating after me. And in a moment, A life was changed. He had just gotten out of prison. And here God had changed him. Folks, whatever we may think about him or even that lady he was with, I can tell you they were revived. See, I can tell you God did something in them. And as much sin as there is in this valley, the only hope and the only answer for anybody Is God. See? One of them crusades down there in Plainville, there was a man that cried on that front row the whole time I preached. That place was packed the first year we ever went down there. Old cowboy and farmer sitting down there. I told some story about the military or about Vietnam or something dealing with forgiveness. That man had gone through Vietnam and had been through all kinds of difficulties. But one message cut through all of that he couldn't even sleep that night he went to coffee the next morning got together with those men and I mean God had so stirred his heart the only thing most people had ever heard come out of his mouth was swear words and cuss words and now he was down at the coffee shop telling all of them farmers you need to get to that sale barn and hear that preacher you need to get there and hear what he has to say God can change anybody just like that and God may have changed you that quickly The only thing I'm saying is that this is important and what God is doing in us is wonderful. And I hope and pray as we continue to walk with God, one day we come down here and there's not room enough to put anybody as we keep walking with God. Because I do know there's something different about King of Kings that's unlike any of the other churches around. And it's not me. It's because of all of you. As of all of you, let's all stand. I don't know, maybe you're going through something right now. You're passing through a valley and need some special prayer. We certainly want to take the time to do that uh, with you and for you. But real quick, like we'll. We'll just see if anybody's needing prayer, but let's all just bow our heads and close our eyes. But if you're honest enough to say, Pastor, I do need some. Should pray there's something going on in my life and I need prayer. If that's you, would you slip your hand up? I want to pray for you. I want to agree with you and ask God to do something for you. I believe He's able to do that. He's a wonderful, wonderful God. He's a wonderful, wonderful God. I see the hands. I see the hands. God is certainly a God that answers prayer and blesses his people. Tiff, if you could find a song